best rock songs I've heard in my life so far. Awesome. I am the modern man. And welcome to Earbuds and Earworms. I'm Amy Wayback Machine Shepherd, and this is uh, Mitchell Manley, completely unprepared. <laughs> That's my job. Yeah, You're I figured I'd. You're my job. Yeah, we're still. You you did research in the last few weeks, okay. so now um, you took my job, so now I have to take one of yours. Uh, oh wait, does that mean the rest of the songs are not like researched? Right. Oh, that could be really really scary. No. But this week we kind of threw it out. We're trying to angle it out for some stories and stuff. And our yeah, yeah our our theme is like the earliest song memories. Like, hey, the first time you remember sitting around. And being aware of, like, the song on the radio, which I feel like, I think everybody probably has that moment. Yeah, and it can it can range in any sort of age, you know, whenever you actually really start to pay attention to the music, you know, as opposed to just, oh, music is a thing that's around and you kind of take it for granted. Yeah. Like, whenever you actually start paying attention to the moods of music and, and the message that, that some music has, you know. I'll be curious to see what Ella says that is in 10 years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So I want to know what is one of your earliest song memories. All right, so uh, I'm going to start us off with the monotones, Book of Love. I love you, darling. Baby, you know I do. But I've got to see this book of love. Find out why it's true. Wonder, wonder, My dad has had the same Ford F-150 truck since I was like four or five, and as far back as I can remember, he's only ever had like two or three cassette tapes that he kept in the console, and my favorite was the soundtrack from the movie American Graffiti. Have you ever seen it? I have. Like, I have a, I think it has, um, who's that guy who always looks like a little down on his luck? But it's about Harvey Picard, I think, right? It's been a while since I've seen it, but I just know the soundtrack is amazing and ron howard's in it george lucas yeah i completely uh, got that wrong just completely ignore yeah. what i just said but yeah american graffiti <laughs> soundtrack has tons of like 50s doo-wop and early rock and roll uh there's so many great songs on the soundtrack but i think this was the first one that i'd rewind back multiple times to hear it again uh it wasn't until i started digging through uh the soundtrack and kind of remembering all those songs that i started to realize that a lot of those songs, this one especially, probably instilled an appreciation for musical elements that I'm fascin- fascinated with even now. Uh, of course, all those 50s and early 60s songs were just catchy and poppy, which I obviously love. Uh, the song has tons of great harmonies uh, and was one of the first songs where I noticed that really prominent bass vocal, which was a lot of fun for me to try to sing when <laughs> I was a little kid, you know. It has the, the, the nonverbal elements, the, the, you know, the doo-wops and the boom-bup-a-doos and the <laughs> shawalla-wallas and all that sort of stuff. You know, I'm all about that. 
and it doesn't have a traditional chorus. You know, the music just comes to an abrupt halt, and they do a quick little tagline acapella, and then drop right back into another verse. It's it's really a brilliant little microcosm of just all these things I love about music. Wait, that little acapella part is not the chorus. I mean, it doesn't really count as a chorus necessarily. I mean, I guess it could, but it's just a singular line where. Yeah, you know, I a, consider a it the chorus. That's the only part that I used to sing of it right. when I was little because I'm terrible at following stuff. <laughs> um, I I know the song was always played on the oldie station in Jackson. Cool 103. I, I just know that one. It's the harmonies, of course, yeah, and the doo-woppiness. Mm-hmm. And gosh darn it, it's just so rhythmic and sweet. I, I didn't realize how they have chapters in it. Yeah. Like, they actually sing about chapters because I was always singing the acapella chorus thing. Right. So I there is something so amazing about just this song that really throws, I think, you back into, like, these good feelings because it is pretty much, like, this very – innocent and beautiful little song granted the 50s 60s are not innocent and beautiful times but sure. it, it, it may they certainly knew how to brand themselves exactly yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly they really branded it like that i brought something probably a few years later it's by zagard evans in the year 2525 in the year 45 45 gonna need won't find a thing to choose. Nobody's gonna look at you. In the year 55-55, your arms are hanging limp at your side. Your legs got nothing to do. Some machine doing that for you. In the year 65-65, Ain't gonna need no husband, won't need no wife You pick your son, pick your daughter too From the bottom of a long glass tube Whoa, whoa In the year 7510 If God's a-coming, he ought to make it by then I don't know any other humans that like this song, and this is pretty much one of my very first memories in the 1986 Dodge Caravan with, you know, the cool siding and stuff. And my father listened to Cool 103. Cool 103. <laughs> yep. And, do it every time. Yes. His, it was my entire childhood was listening to Cool 103. Cool 103. And, don't sue us, Cool 103. Yeah, and WKNO. Um, so... Just I just recall the first time I heard this song and I declared how much I loved it and my father was absolutely horrified and I thought he just hated the song but I have more theories now. Um, I love the numbers. It's like 25, 25, 35, 35, 45, 45 which works well in my brain and I really like to notice numbers and things and uh, I really didn't realize that they switched over to the 10s like 17, 10, 8, or 19, 10 uh, just for a few numbers and it was pretty much to force a rhyme but it's i didn't realize how super apocalyptic this song yeah, is super apocalyptic so i thought my dad just hated this song but it turns out it's like oh when your four-year-old declares that they love this like song about the end of humanity and how like grim everything is and starts referencing like obvious grim literature about like popping pills for eating and how man's gonna die yeah uh it just um uh, 
Yeah, this song pretty much shows my roots in loving, like, very easy to listen to pop goofy music, but, like, also just easy to enjoy songs that obviously I was not listening to lyrics, like, lyrics to at all. Definitely wasn't. So, first (laughs) off, I'm kind of mad at you. I'm sorry. Because I tried suggesting songs about the future as a possible theme for this week with the explicit (laughs) purpose of bringing this song to the podcast. So you stole my thunder, which I don't appreciate. Here's the thing. You said, oh, well, we could do songs of, like, your first musical memories. I had no idea. This just happened to be. I didn't know. I guess maybe the universe (laughs) just knew this song had to make it this week one way or the other. Yes. And so, yeah, at least least I still get to talk about how great this song is because I do actually enjoy this song. I'm so happy somebody likes this song. It's simplistic, but it's good, you know. Dakota was hating on this song every single time I played it this week. So it's cool because it has this descending chord pattern, and it's also in a minor key. So even musically, it's very foreboding and like dystopic sounding. Mm-hmm. And I too love the numbers, and they're all repetitive: twenty-five, twenty-five, thirty-five, thirty-five, up until you get to seventy-five, ten. Yep. Now, to your math brain, that switch may have seemed weird and kind of arbitrary, but to the music brain, I notice that when they make that switch, they also change the key up a half step, which makes the energy even more frantic and like anxious sounding, and sort of disorients you just like. Like the number change does, which is kind of cool. Yep. And also it just makes, you know, whenever you change it, it's like, oh, things are changing. And, like, yeah, it's anxious feeling. Mm-hmm. And so it's a simple song in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, but I really admire that little bit of trickery and the fact that they got their one hit playing a pretty dark song, <laughs> which considering it came, came out in 1969, like it was on the charts in the summer of 1969, uh-huh. must have resonated with some people, I think. Yeah, I... I I didn't, you know, I didn't know any history of it. I just knew, like, I love this song, and they never played it that often on oldies right. song, like oldies things. And th- how did you come to this song? I heard it on the radio one time, like many, 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 many years ago. Sometime when I was like seventeen or something, and then I ended up getting the record. I found the record ah. at some antique shop in Jackson. Okay, was it the one next to the tavern? No, it was, uh, although, wow, that place, Yesterday's, I think it was yes. called. That place had tons of cool stuff. Uh-huh. You had to go up to the attic for the records. It was someplace on Carriage House. I okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know which place that is, yeah. too. <laughs> We're dorks. Mm-hmm. Uh, super inside radio. Um, the Ear Buddies have tons of memories, and I I love this, because although we weren't necessarily going for, like, oldies soundtracks, of course, what we remember as kids are probably oldies songs now anyway. And I love the stories this week so much. Our first ear buddy is Josh, who brought Starship's Sarah.
I was four years old, my mom was driving me to preschool and this song came on the radio and it was the first time I remember hearing and feeling music for the first time. I think it not only defines a time and part of my life that's personal, but always makes me wonder about what it is within us, uh, within this particular song that spoke to me at an age when I knew nothing about anything. Maybe there's some molecular combination that makes scent drums and boisterous falsettos appeal to my synaptic foundation. Most kids I grew up most kids I knew that grew up in the 80s are loathsome and detest the music that plagued them in their early days. I never ran from it, though. It could have been any other song, but it wasn't. It wasn't this one. I'm cool with that. It was this one. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I, knew, I knew it was going to be kind of tough to get through some of these uh, stories because yeah. they're long chunks, but I knew if anybody could do it, it'd be you, Amy. So Thanks. I'm trying. I'm going to congratulate you ahead of time for how good of a job you're doing. Thanks. Um, this song is so delightful in many ways. Of course, I, you know, I know that it started out as like what Jefferson Airplane and then Jefferson Starship and then mm-hmm. Starship. So I don't, I mean, yeah, this was Starship's rendition of it. And I can't remember the change in people that changed how it was done or whatever. I know it's complicated. Um, it's, it's got this sound of the time that is just amazing, but it's also this very solid arrangement. And I didn't realize how much I'd recognize this song because, some of these songs I don't know the names of or I don't know the bands, but this one is just a soulful song that for sure can pull the heartstrings of anybody, including a four-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed about all of our selections this week, they're all undeniably catchy and memorable, but in different and interesting ways. Uh, this one catches you by surprise because it's a slower tempo, mm-hmm. kind of darker song, but it still has a lot of power and push because of the echoey drum groove and that super fat bass synth. <laughs> And the really interesting chord arrangement that sort of lingers in uncertainty and then like blooms and brightens in certain parts. Uh, this song also has that Oceans of Reverb thing, like makes it sound really big and warm and sort of engulfs you as you listen. Uh, it's definitely easy to see why four-year-old Josh would love this track. Aw, it's so good. Yeah, it's, it's, just, a, it's a very catchy one. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of these songs, as you said, are just, maybe it's because when we're smaller... The catchiness. Right, yeah. It gets stuck in our heads a lot easier. And then we aren't, like, you know, angry teenagers who don't want to be, like, into, like, I guess, common stuff. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Quincy brings Martika, Martika's Kitchen. It's been so long since you've been down to the kitchen, baby. My desire is running longer than a country mile. So true, you can make all my wishes. used to pick me up from preschool and she had the martika's kitchen tape and we listened to the title track on the way home every afternoon i love this me too. so much 
Quincy's mom has so many cool points. It is really saucy for the preschool pickup line. That's and true. I just totally appreciate the ballsiness of her rolling home listening to the song. Um, I wish I could pinpoint the quality that makes this so darn special. There's synth organ. There's oven references. There's a confidence of Martika into doing what she's going to be doing. And I just totally appreciate it. And dang. I like that Quincy's mom did not like. Quincy's mom totally rules. <laughs> she does. I'm sure. I'm. I know I've met her before. Yeah. At some point, because we used to be in middle school together. Mm-hmm. So I'm. Dang. Quincy's mom's a baller. Well, I do have some good news for you. Yes. We are going to pinpoint what's so darn special about this song. Yay. Um. So before now, my only exposure to Martika was her song "Toy Soldiers." Okay. I don't know if you've heard that one. Maybe. Uh, I assume that she was just a one-hit wonder for that one song. And so as the song started, I was just expecting like a generic, dancey, 80s pop jam in the vein of like Paula Abdul or Madonna. And of course, I noticed that super fat bass synth <laughs> again in this one. So I started paying extra attention to what that bass was doing. And then I noticed that the other instruments had some pretty ambitious parts happening too. And that it wasn't just like the generic pop money grab that I was sort of expecting. It had this like extra funk and color to it. So I looked it up. And holy crap, it's written and produced by Prince. <laughs> Yay! That's so, why it's baller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So once I realized that, it all made sense. And now all I can hear is that like characteristic Prince sound all over it. A lot of the chords are like interesting variations and kind of dirty and colorful. Has like the syncopated rhythm section, like trading off from one instrument to another over, over the course of a short phrase. Lots of call and response. Uh, and then the bass takes a lot of the cues from the stuff that we talked about last week, <laughs> where the bass players are keeping a motif of the bass riff the same, but just kind of meandering all over the place in and around the basic structure just the whole time. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much to glean from the song once you realize what all is going on. I wish I had heard this when I was in preschool. I don't know if my parents were like going to pull. Well, I was busy. It's just about to- food so good that yeah. it makes you want to break the plates. Yeah, it's just food. Yeah. Yeah. It's just delicious, delicious food. It's so good. So so baller though. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> Our next ear buddy is Debbie who brings Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Baker Street from Jerry Rafferty brings back a distinct memory of being five or six years old and driving into Portland, Oregon late at night and being almost home after a long road trip to see the grandparents in Idaho. This song came on the radio, probably 620 KGW, my mom's favorite AM station, and was the perfect soundtrack to see the glow of city lights over the tops of pine trees. I know this was an intro to some show or something. Or something. I don't know. It's cemented in my brain. It's Dave Ramsey. Is it Dave Ramsey? It's Dave Ramsey's radio show. 
wait. I don't know if you ever listened to Dave Ramsey, but I know I, that that's my best guess because it definitely was. I that. I always listen to like I guess I cut in when they're not introing, and it's always somebody with like one hundred ninety thousand dollars incoming that can't manage their bills. Right. And I'm like, I wish I had your problems. Yeah, seriously. Uh, but. It cements into your brain, and this sax line is just absolutely exhilarating. And I can imagine just sitting in the car as a child and just like, you know, that that <laughs> it it's just brings a distinct feel to anyone who hears it, especially if you heard it earlier on as a child. It's like personally. This reminds me of the brown shag carpet of my childhood home, which must be where I must I first heard this. Yeah, the saxophone line in this just sounds like brown shag carpet. I know. Well, I it, was, it was short shag, right. but it was still shag carpeting. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I can totally see it. Yeah, I grew up in a 70s house. Um, so, yeah, that sax line is one of the catchiest, most iconic riffs ever recorded. Uh, so good, in fact, still to this day. <laughs> Even having just listened to it, I can never remember anything about how the rest of the song goes. It's some All I can remember, singing. Yeah, is that song riff yeah. or that sax riff. Yeah. Uh, I think my main exposure to this one uh, was like riding in my dad's truck when he was listening to Dave Ramsey and he used that sax line as his bumper music. Uh, most people will ever never even know what the song is called, but they can sing that sax line for sure. <laughs> yep. uh, you can notice that the song doesn't have a normal like verse chorus verse song structure, just several like understated stanzas of lyrics separated by that gnarly sax line. <laughs> and you know most popular songs have to rely on like a catchy chorus with memorable lyrics and a hummable melody. This guy just pushes full steam ahead into that humble melody, <laughs> uh, which is something uh, I like to embrace in some of my own songs. You know, I'm not the most poetic lyricist, but I love trying to incorporate certain catchy hooks that kind of leave the listener humming my song the rest of the day. <laughs> I know uh, in my age group, no one will ever know who, who the hell Jerry Rafferty is, but that sax line is going to live on forever. Yeah, like they definitely know that sax line for sure. It has been somewhere, definitely. Justin W. brings. <laughs> so excited. Kenny Loggins Footloose. Been working so hard. I'm punching my car. Eight hours forward. Oh, tell me what I got. I got this feeling. That time's still holding me down. I'll hit the ceiling. Oh, well, some tear up. Probably 1980-ish, my parents had the soundtrack on cassette, and one day I asked to hear Burning the Urn. My dad couldn't figure out what I was asking for until some other day it played, and I said, that's it, Burning the Urn, referring to the lyrics, you're burning, yearning for some, is what he says. I love messing up some lyrics. Yeah, misheard lyrics is always yeah. fun. Yeah, definitely, because I, I can screw that stuff up. Kenny Loggins is simply magic. That's just the truth of the matter, like... I, he's made like a billion songs that everybody knows, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see the movie until like last year and luckily yeah. I already knew the song and I, I'm 
pretty sure without even seeing that warehouse thing that's going on with the Footloose that I had indeed, like, yeah, like that scene had already been in my brain. Um, If this is going to be your starter song, like one of your first memories, it's just not a bad place to start. It's joyous. It's got like a little slightly country hand clappy synth dancey thing going. And I I did dig up dance double info on some the dance fam- double d- some info da- yeah some dance doubles info on the famous warehouse scene from the hollywood reporter and also people it looks like hollywood reporter actually dug up some people look research <laughs> uh kevin bacon says that he did the majority of the dancing in the film except for the lively warehouse scene in which he says i was furious it's like a starting pitcher getting taken out of the game no one wants to be told they can't get the guy out i had a stunt double a dance double and two gymnastics doubles. <laughs> he goes on to say where they were five of us in the effing outfit and i felt horrible wow i know i didn't know kevin bacon felt so bad about it five two gymnastics doubles did he's doing some crazy like um yeah it's it's nuts yeah. in that warehouse scene yeah like who who does that who does that okay sometimes you just gotta let your <laughs> let your soul sing through through the art of dance and choreography and random poles where you can flip around right mm-hmm. uh I, I definitely can't recall when i heard the song for the first time i'm pretty sure it was just this ubiquitous force permeating my childhood uh, i definitely remember singing it when i was super young especially after church on sundays when i was literally kicking off my sunday shoes <laughs> Uh, I've only seen the movie once, but it was in high school when I did the lighting for JCM stage production of Footloose, Ooh. which was pretty good, actually. I think I might have seen that one. Yeah, so, and, and Kitty Loggins, dude's just a hit-making machine. The song builds from just drums and percussion, and then into the simple bass line that develops some attitude, but doesn't really give away where the th- where things are going. And then the guitars come in one at a time, <laughs> and then it completes the intro build-up by adding in that little whistly synth. Mm-hmm. And then for the verse, everything drops back down to being super minimal. But the hand claps, they come in, and then they like keep that power and momentum going while Kenny, oh, Kenny, he pulls a sneaky on you, builds it right back up again, explodes into one of the catchiest choruses of all time. I know, it's so good. Uh, yeah, the, the like, lyrical content may not be the most poetic or cerebral thing you'll ever read, but the words get trapped in your brain. You can't help but like get caught in the push and pull of, of you know the way the song just ebbs and flows. You're going to end up singing it. You're going to end up dancing and getting footloose. Yeah, and it's going to be like that, you know. Yeah, it's, sh- it's almost a Carlton dance or yeah. like a little <laughs> skanking place. Yeah, it's like yeah. you were describing it. I'm like playing it in my, yeah. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brandon brings Weird Al's happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Sing along, okay? Happy birthday! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday! Happy birthday to you! Says, I was a huge Weird Al fan from a very young age and owned a bunch of his albums on cassettes. So here's one of my favorite of his original songs. 
This was way back in the days when we couldn't sing happy birthday without, like, paying some random human being. And I, first of all, childhood, Weird Al, all requirements. I had Running With Scissors on cassette, Mm -hmm. and we played it a lot Mm -hmm. on, like, you know the boom box that has the detachable speakers, but it's, like, big and silver? Yep. Because every dad had one of those. Yep. And, yes, sang around in, like, our shared bedroom as kids and, like just being dorks and then of course albuquerque would be yes. the one i would have chosen. so good it is so good yeah yeah if, if brandon hadn't brought weird al weird Al was definitely going to be my pick this week Ooh. Uh, i was in like second or third grade and coolio's gangsta's paradise had been out for a while but was still like a huge radio and mtv hit mm-hmm. and one of my brothers brought home a cassette with weird al's amish paradise on it and hearing that for the first time blew my tiny mind <laughs> and probably shaped me in a lot of ways i bought every weird al release i could find Taped all the Al TV specials off MTV. Watched his little Saturday morning show that he had when yep. that came out. Told all my friends about how great Weird Al was. And, like, I'm positive that getting into Weird Al fairly young shaped my sense of humor. And, like, through his parodies, I was able to, like, acquaint myself with a lot of cultural milestones, both in terms of the songs that he was goofing on, as well as, like, the random pop culture references thrown into the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, his songs were packed full of, like, incredible vocal harmonies, which obviously I, I grew to love. And then he parodied a wide spectrum of genres, so that probably paved the way for my diverse taste in music. Like, genuinely, I'd say Discovering Weird Al helped shape the person who I am today in, in some pretty meaningful ways. I can see that. I mean, you do have, like, curly hair, too, mm-hmm. so yeah, you have that in common, let alone are you shaped in musical, like, ways. You're also, you've got, like, the cool, long, curly hair. Right. I'm just saying. It's a random thing. <laughs> How often does he put his in a ponytail? I, I can't say I've ever seen Weird Al's hair in a ponytail. Yeah, it's I think always... he usually does. Yeah, he's just out with it. I, I, I want to know his, like, care program because he's got those managed so well. Uh, Jeremy S. Springs. Sorry, that was random. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy S. Springs, B.W. Stevenson's My Maria. I'm a lonely dreamer, lonely highway in I know where this is going, so I have a distinct memory of hearing the song for the first time while waiting in the car for the bus to take my six-year-old ass to J.C. summer camp. Loved it. It was a little unique in that it was a primarily acoustic song that rocked a little. It's still a favorite drum track, in fact. Dude sounded like he was waiting for his Maria to stop on by so they could enjoy a nice hot bowl of chili together while watching the snow come down from the safety of his faux wood panel living room. <laughs> it was a nice mental image. Years later, Brooks and Dunn would absolutely massacre this tune, a crime for which they deserve to be strung up by their genitals but i don't expect much in the way of justice these days so yeah <laughs> uh 
this way and rhythm of the song are hypnotic and it's got this uh you know the uh a weebo way a weebo way song yep so the maria's kind of got that like whole thing yeah, going. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so i i kind of associate it with whatever that song is king of the king yeah of the lion king. sleeps tonight the lion yeah, sleeps, I, yeah i always did as well actually yeah, so. I like i want to call it the lion king but it's not that yeah no uh i know not of brooks and dunn off the top of my head but i like that you're willing to defend the original uh maybe not grab their junk i would assume maybe not but i appreciate the passion of which you're defending your version of the song yeah so i I mentioned to jeremy in the thread that the brooks and dunn version was actually an early favorite for me and i'll still defend that version (laughs) as being good but whenever i heard the bw stevenson version in my late teens i fell in love with it and got super hype on his records for a few months Uh, he has a handful of other hits and he had several other incredible songs that'll likely go overlooked and forgotten by most people but definitely worth a deep dive for those who haven't checked him out already uh, the drums absolutely make the song, especially during those little pre-chorus tags. And I also agree with Jeremy about it being a very evocative song, setting-wise. Uh, it's a sort of country swagger channeled through this grizzled folk song that like sort of sets a particular mood and evokes this homey, quaint vibe, and it's very sincere. Uh, it's definitely always be one of my favorite songs. So what did Brooks and Dunn do differently? They just made it into a more straightforward country song, and the the drum buildup that that jeremy and i love so much in this one is not quite as present in the brooks and dunn version and if you if you hate 90s country you're gonna hate anything brooks and dunn does and not take it seriously is that like boot scoot and boogie type stuff that's that's who did boot scoot and boogie was brooks and dunn oh really okay yeah i hate them it's fine (laughs) you're wrong but that's all right i hate the do you know how often that got played in elementary school man that's horrible good songs are good songs can't help it (laughs) Well, you can um, at me on the Twitter at Madam Woolley and I'm at Pow I Gotcha. And the show is at End Pod. I would like to thank JoJo for the sympathy about my stolen aerodyne. The Earbuds and Earworms podcast group is available on the Facebooks and definitely tons of memories and discussions going on this week. And I find it sentimental and sweet. Our voicemail line is 731-400-BUDS or 731-400-2837. You can email the show, endpod at gmail.com, and you can always find the show at endpod.com, part of the 10710 network. Now, I see your pick, and Mm -hmm. I love it. I think we may have even talked about it once before on the podcast at some point. Yeah, and if you look at what was popular every single year for like 20 years on my birthday, it was some Mariah Carey song. Right. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to be leaving us with a Mariah Carey song called Always Be My Baby. I already know that some of our listeners are probably going to be like, Mariah Carey, what? (laughs) But, I mean, I guess really... Since you know that I usually pick the final song, it shouldn't be too big of a surprise yeah. for folks that I would pick something that mm. poppy and whatever. But uh, the video for this song was released in early 1996, which puts me at about eight years old. Such a youngin. Yeah, I already liked Mariah Carey's song Fantasy, but whenever this song came out, I was instantly drawn to it in a much deeper way. I was eight, so I knew nothing of love or any connection with the lyrical content. And though I loved music at the time, didn't really play any instruments other than just like fiddling on a keyboard. Wait, there was a time you didn't play instruments? Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. Like I kind of fiddled around on a keyboard, and then I had you know one of those microphones that you can yell into okay. that every kid gets at some point. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't until a little bit after that that I started actually playing real instruments. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually just the natural flow of the song and the the sentimentality and the loving vibe of the song that kind of drew me in at the time and 
Maybe a little because I thought Mariah Carey was a cutie pie. <laughs> but now, many years down the line, I know that this song was produced by Jermaine Dupri, who produced tons of hip-hop and R&B in the early and mid-90s and was arguably at the height of his power when this song came out. And as a musician, I realized the importance of the key change toward the end of this one and makes it super triumphant. And then the groovy bass line just really stands out in this one, especially the way it drives the choruses. This would have been a good one for last week's bass lines yep. episode, which if you didn't listen to that, go back and check that one out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, pay extra attention to those bassy grooves and Mariah Carey's Always Be My Baby.
Quincy's mom totally rules. She 